Blog Talk Radio. Okay, can you hear me now? I can. Yes, I was on mute. Okay. <laughs> See, I had the call muted because I'm not using the host line, I'm using a guest line. So, everybody, welcome to Brandon's Buzz. It's the second episode. I'm still getting the hang of things around here, the technology and such. Uh, I assume that everybody can hear me now. Yes, can you hear me now? No? You still can't hear me now? Ugh. Okay. Can anybody hear me now? You mean beside Gordon? Can anyone hear me? Yes. Okay, I'm getting the thumbs up. People can hear me. I'm telling you what, we're going to get there, guys. Third time's the charm. It's the second episode of Brandon's Buzz. Technology problems galore, mainly because I'm an idiot. But let me tell you something. It was worth the wait. Thank you for waiting. I have a true treat for you guys tonight. Uh, A television legend for two decades and better. Listen, as an actor... He was something of a late bloomer, and he didn't find his signature role, that of Adam, the sinister yet impossibly suave, long-lost scion of the wealthy Carrington family on the ABC smash Dynasty, until the ripe age of 37. But boy, did he make the most of the golden opportunity. Not only did his seven-year stint on the show win him worldwide fame and adulation and a Golden Globe nomination to boot, but his portrayal of Adam was so searing and indelible that beyond Joan Collins and John Forsythe, the people who played his on-screen parents... Of course, he's almost certainly the best-remembered actor on the show, and he's living proof that lightning can indeed strike twice. 
After Dynasty folded, he moved with utmost grace into the world of daytime television, nabbing perhaps the most coveted male role in the history of the genre, that of wondrously loquacious drunk Mason Capwell on the late great NBC classic Santa Barbara. He played Mason for the final two years and change of the series' run, and although he was the third actor in the part, and positively no one envied him the task, considering the size of the shoes he was asked without much warning to fill, he managed, and with graceful, serene ease, to make the part his own. And indeed, for many fans' money, this one most certainly included. His incarnation of Mason was far and away the most erudite and enjoyable. And tonight, he has graciously agreed to drop by the buzz to talk about... Uh, not only his two most famous roles, but the entirety of his sublime career in television and film. Guys, it is my sincere honor and one of the great thrills of my life to welcome to this show the ravishingly dashing Gordon Thompson. <laughs> Thank you, Brandon. That's very... That, what a fulsome, fulsome speech. Well done. Well done. Uh, uh, you're quite welcome, and it's well-deserved. i tell you what, you are fabulous. Thank you. And I have been a fan of yours for a long, long time. I've been acting for a long, long time. <laughs> Okay, so I'd like to put you on the spot right quick before we get started here. Sure. Uh, my best friend, Sherry Ann, she's the coolest chick I know, and she was quite upset last night because I didn't say her name on the radio, and she loves it when I say her name on the radio. So I want to be a bit unprofessional and ask you to say hi to Sherry Ann if you don't mind. Of course, hi, Sherry Ann. <laughs> I hope you're listening and watching and whatever you're supposed to do on the web, and I hope you enjoy yourself. I intend to, and I know Brandon will. <laughs> She's in the chat room. Hopefully she's listening. Hi, Sherry Ann. We love you. Okay, so uh, let's get kind of the, um, the uh, I don't know, the 60-second bio on the early part of your life. You were born in Canada, yes? Yes, I was. And you grew up there for the entirety of, of, of oh, yeah, your... Yeah. I mean, I was born in Ottawa. I'm going to... My 64th birthday is coming up in about six weeks, March the 2nd. 1945, and um, I was very lucky enough um, to be an apprentice at the Stratford Festival in 65 when I was 20, and it was the best schooling in those days anybody could ask for. I was working with, with the best actors at the time in Canada, with the best playwright in the language, and for five months I did nothing but absorb and work and work and work. And it was <laughs> wonderful. And then after that, it was just <clears throat> I, I, because I couldn't work in America because of the green card problem, visa, and blah, blah, blah. Um, that only happened with Dynasty, really. Um, so I had your basic journeyman actor's life. Okay. You know, rep and review. I, I sing a bit. I was in Godspell with a great cast in 73 in Toronto. Gilda Radner, Marty Short. Um, oh, God. That's heady company to be in. Oh, it's wonderful. I mean, it's great. Again, Andrea Martin. Um, I'm forgetting a couple. Just brilliant, brilliant company. And all for 234 bucks a week. We were all working <laughs> at the Bayview Playhouse. And I bet the thrill of your life. I bet. You, I bet it was. It was like a million dollars to you. Well, it was. It was. I was given one week. Do you know? Do you know the show at all? Godspell. Uh, I, I know of it. I don't. I don't know it backwards well, and forwards, day, obviously, but I know of it. It was an enormous hit. It was based on the book of Matthew. Um, and it's basically a clown show, and Jesus is the master of ceremonies. Um, and it, it, I was given one week to learn the entire show, which is two hours nonstop on stage. It was like doing a two-hour aerobics class with song and speech. Wow. It was exhausting. And it took me about a month to relax 
and to realize what a huge treat it was to work that hard with such a great company on such wonderful material. And there's you know industrial shows and Shakespeare and Stratford Moore again and television and blah blah blah. Okay. So essentially, you always wanted to be an actor. Yes. In that case, I think one is very lucky um, to want to, to know without a question in your mind that this is what you have to do. Absolutely. And otherwise, I would have wound up probably an alcoholic teacher or an alcoholic architect or an alcoholic something. <laughs> and just now, I'm proper. I'm an actor, and I have been since I was 18 years old. Wow. I knew this is what I had to do. And that's funny because, and I, I don't mean this as an insult at all, but you seem very theatrical and very kind of gregarious and kind of given to being an actor. So it's 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 quite funny that you always kind of knew. That's thank you. I I, I think theatricality is um, not a bad thing. It, in, it it to me anyway, the real thing. It implies a huge amount of energy and passion. Absolutely. But you know, there there are some folks when when you when you call them theatrical, you don't mean it in a good way. I mean, it's kind of you're hammy, overdone, yeah, exactly. fake, camp, crap. Yeah, no, 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 no. I have no that kind of, you know, yeah. that kind of theatrical. Yeah. It's not the kind of theatricality. <laughs> I have anything to do with it. I can't stand it. I cannot use the word darling, for instance. I just can't. <laughs> Unless I'm into, Im- imitating Joan. And it's, oh, darling, how the fuck are you? That's, that's a different kind of... <laughs> and talk about somebody who's theatrical. Oh, oh, please. <laughs> and may I say, her secret... and. She probably doesn't even know, know this herself. Is she has enormous energy. She just it, she thinks she's thirty five year old starlet to this day, and she can be abrasive and off putting and all kinds of things. But her <laughs> secret is she has absolutely boundless energy. That's that's just great. I want to talk all about her. I, I can't wait to dig into all that. Uh, I'm not going to badmouth a lot of people. I'm oh, of course not. I, I'm certainly not asking for that, and I'm not asking for tales out of school either. But I understand. But you know, you were you you had an inside view on two television classics, and and uh, we all want the scoop here. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, on on the phone a while ago, right before the show started, you were telling me that you that you took Russian in uh, in, in high school for a year. Yes, my last year in high school. I don't know if everybody knows this or not, but my boyfriend is Russian, and he speaks and he speaks fluent Russian. Do you recall anything at all from the from the course? Well, I can say ya ya negavaryu poruski, which means I don't speak Russian. <laughs> and I can say zdravstvuite, which is a great word which means hello. <laughs> I remember when I did um the really hideous remake of Poseidon, the Poseidon Adventure, <clears throat> I was sitting I was one of Richard Drivers' best friends. And I was I spent two weeks in, at Richard's table, which was he was at Wonderfully energetic. Talk about energy. He burns with it. Well, his girlfriend is Russian, and I tried to teach him how to say Zdravstvite, and he said, well, Dobry Dien. I mean, good day, Dobry Dien. Well, that's easy. Zdravstvite has a wonderful Russian juicy sound to it, and I, he never learned. So to your boyfriend, Zdravstvite Tavarish. Excellent. He's listening right now, so let's see if he typed something in the, in the chat room to respond. But, you know, as we were saying before the show started, it's such a gorgeous, uh, very expressive language. I mean, yes. it, it's, it's a theatrical it's, language, actually. It's, it's almost impossible to hold your, your face or your body still when you're really getting on a roll with it, because it's, it's just, it's, it's so given to, you know, moving your hands and 
moving your face and, you know, really kind of getting into it, getting throwing your whole body behind it. Yes, it's a wonderful language. <laughs> it's operatic in, in a way. It's it's absolutely gorgeous. I picked up a few words here and there, but but uh, it's it's really quite stunning. Yep, I agree. So that that was so funny that you mentioned that. So do you remember your first big break? Do you know how it kind of all got started? Well, actually, my first big break was getting into the Stratford Festival at the age of 20. I was 19. I auditioned for the artistic director at the time, Michael Langham. Michael was and probably still is regarded as one of the best classical directors in the English-speaking world. And I, in my ignorance and innocence and possible stupidity, um, did two very standard things. I did the first chorus, 10 minute fifth, and I also did Hamlet's first soliloquy, um, and which I worked on, as you can imagine, standing on my head, all any, any possible variation, because this was my dream, was to work at the festival. And I finished my audition, and he said, very good, excellent. <laughs> and I sort of floated off the rehearsal stage. I, I thought, Jesus, it doesn't get better than this. Oh. I was 19, and this man was a god for me, and very good. <laughs> well, I got the job. And that was my first huge breakthrough. And I guess um, then, jump ahead many, many years, um, I suppose American television, my first decent job was Brian's Hope. Yes. Um, and isn't that funny? I, you know, one of my questions, before I started really digging into your kind of resume, one of my questions was going to be, how did you survive the transition from from Dynasty to Santa Barbara, but I didn't realize that you started on soaps. I, 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 well, I, my first, I did a, my first soap opera in Canada in 19, oh God, 77, I think it was a very short-lived show called High Hopes. Um, a brilliant man called Bruce Minix came up from, I think he used to be the mayor of Cape May. Bruce was one of the founding fathers of daytime television. In okay. America, and he came up to set us on the right track and again lucky me I, my first daytime job I was 32 I was playing 20 or some asinine damn thing um, the god of jeans was good to me um, yes indeed and, uh, to both well, of I, us I was again very lucky to work with my maiden voyage with one of the best in the business you know uh -huh. so but when, when I got a chance to go to New York to do Ryan's Hope I was not taken aback by the load of work and um, again Santa Barbara was, which was the best job I've ever had. I mean, in terms of, of, of the material and the absolutely. Uh, he, however, was the chattiest cappy <laughs> on American television. <laughs> Indeed, thirty-five pages average, five days a week. You bet. No days off for two and a half years. See, that's, that's a lot of goddamn dialogue. That's the downside of being good. You're expected to, you know, kind of carry your share of the weight. Oh, and beyond, because Mason was. <laughs> In his way, he was the spine of the show, uh -huh. as far as the Dobsons were concerned. Yes. So, you're in Canada, and was there a point when you realized that you were going to have to come down south in order to really make it as an actor, or did it just kind of happen that way? It just happened, because I'll tell you something. It was very daunting. Uh, immigration probably still is, but certainly then was an enormous problem. And I remember talking to... Oh, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's times worse now. Do you think? Oh, I would imagine so. With all the, with all the, you know, the regulations and the the whole 9/11 coloring everything. Yes, yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. I would imagine it's much worse. It's much harder now. But well, 
I remember talking with um, a brilliant immigration lawyer when I first came down to um, audition and read for Ryan's Hope. <clears throat> I didn't have an um, H-2 visa. I did not. I got one. Um, and the lawyer explained to me that it was um, a question of the United Nations, actually. Um, Americans wanted to prevent, I mean, resident North American, Americans, United States citizens, the government wanted to prevent, this is what he told me, to prevent immigration from south of the border. But they couldn't be so specific. So they decided to, 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 to make it a law that people with living in the Western Hemisphere, non-American citizens living in the Western Hemisphere, who wished to enter the U.S., were going to have to live up to a, be restricted by a quota, a very limited quota. Now, Canada is the only other English-speaking, for the most part, country in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. So it was a scapegoat situation, which was very hard to buck, frankly. Gotcha. And I did get the H-2 visa, or H-1, whatever the hell it was. I did get to do Ryan's Hope, and that was the, 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 the daunting task to obtain one on one's own. You had to get members of parliament. You had to get reviews. You had to get all kinds of paper together. Wow. And I'm not a very organized individual. I'm a Luddite <laughs> of the first order. And I'm not, you know, I mean, I just, fucking paperwork. <laughs> so maybe in three years you'll get a piece of paper saying you can work in the United States. Uh -huh. So I relaxed a bit and went with the flow. And the flow led me finally to getting the H visa and the job on Ryan's Hope, which led Actually, um, that term terminated in 82, early 82, and I went back to Toronto, did some work, and as a result of a videotaped audition I had done for Carsey Werner Productions called Grotus, the Most Evil Man in the World, <laughs> which was a pilot they were doing, okay. and they really liked me a lot, and they remembered me, and they decided they wanted to have me shoot another um, screen test for them, for a show called Callahan, with Jamie Lee Curtis attached. Wow, okay. And um, so I suddenly was shipped down to um, L.A. To, to do this test. Excellent. With Jamie Lee, who was not a lady. And um, <laughs> it was for ABC. Uh, Hart Bachner got the job. He was an old friend of Jamie Lee's. And, um, but ABC loved me. And I was cast as Adam as far as the network was concerned, before I knew the part was available and before Aaron Spelling Productions knew I was alive. Excellent. Yeah. That's called serendipity. It, you bet it is. And that really is how my life professionally has lollygagged along, up and down, <laughs> up and down. <laughs> so do you remember anything about Ryan's Hope at all? Was, was, um, was Claire Levine still writing the show at that time? Oh, yes, she was. She okay. and, and Paul were terrific. Okay. Um, Nancy Addison, wonderful leading lady. I adored her. You bet. Um, Bernie Barrow was lovely. Um, Helen Gallagher? Helen Gallagher, a martinet. Very sticky. And, but when she said, I remember after shooting up, they were in the green room watching the show. We used to do that. Um, and we finished. I, I think it was Nancy and I, or maybe Faith and I, came upstairs. And she said, good acting. Good acting. I thought, hmm, that's nice to hear. The lady is a consummate pro. Yes. Well, let me tell you something. They were very serious. Oh, well, you know this. They were very serious about that show. 
Well, they sure were. Uh, you know, and that was still, kind of the that was kind of 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 the of the ABC soaps at that time. That was very much their prestige show. Their crown, crown jewel. You, you bet. bet. You bet. And so they were aware of that, and the cast was aware of it. And the only time they went wrong, i.e., with my storyline, which <laughs> happened because Claire had been to Egypt and loved it, and she said to herself, "I want to get this on my show," and therefore. My name, Aristotle Benedict White, came into being. And uh, I was grateful for, the, for the, the chance to get to New York, which I loved. Yes. It was like coming home to me. It was talk about energy. That city is bursting with energy. I mean, I arrived in the middle of a garbage strike, and I didn't care. I was, I was very happy to be home. And uh, it, was, it was a lot of highly professional, very gifted people involved. Mm-hmm. And I was very glad to be a part of it. Who loved doing that show. Yes. We all did. And so I take it you didn't mesh very well with the with kind of the hyper-realism of the show at the time. No, no it wasn't that. I thought that I, – I, I used to love the show. I mean, I don't watch soap opera, and I, but I got hooked on Ryan's Soap by yeah. accident one day. I thought, my God, this is good. Because uh-huh. um, it, was, it, was, it was when they, they were in the tavern, in, 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 in the pub, and in Maeve's kitchen, and maybe Faith's townhouse. That was it. You have to be very true. It's like the Golden Girls. We're in the, when they're in the kitchen having ice cream at midnight, dishing, mm-hmm. or in the living room, or the lanai, fine. But when they stray out of there, it loses its honesty and its character. Yeah. Well, when Ryan Soap strayed away from the pub, basically, and brought in the exotica of Egypt, with a, they, they actually built a sarcophagus from scratch. Wow. They went, went that far. And they wrote the shit out of it. And it didn't, the audience didn't buy it. Yeah. It had nothing to do with Ryan's hope. It was a vanity thing, actually, for Claire to do, and I'm sorry she did it. Yeah. I'm glad for myself, but I would think it was damaging to the show. Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's pretty much, I mean, we, you know, we'll definitely talk about this when we get to Dynasty. When you get away from the core of the show, it, it, just, it hardly ever works, no Does matter what show you're dealing with. Anything to you read Dynasty? Say, say it one more time. Aliens. <laughs> you bet. When the UFO came down and got we'll Fallon, get, I will, well, that's a story about that, which I will—I'd be happy to reveal. <laughs> we're because getting that there. That was a nail in Dynasty's coffin. Oh, uh, uh, we're gonna get—we're gonna get all—we're gonna—we're gonna talk all about that. <laughs> Let's just take our time. So uh, the Ryan's Hope gig ends, and uh, how long of a gap is there between that and uh, you getting wind of the role of Adam Carrington? Oh, Lord. I went back to Toronto and suddenly began to work very hard. It's something for the Playboy Channel, um, a little mini-series thing, um, and then something else. And then all of a sudden I was asked to go to L.A. to do a screen test for Callahan with Jamie Lee for ABC. And that was June. And by... Excuse <coughs> me. And I had to. I was asked to go down and read for the producers for Dynasty, and they didn't have the part for me. They didn't have the, the sides weren't written. It was <coughs> sorry. Um, I had a, I read with one of the Stephen scenes with Alexis. Okay. And they were blown away. I have to say um, by the reading. And understandably so, I would imagine. Pardon? I said understandably so, I would imagine. Well, I, I don't I, I didn't know much about that 
end of the business. Yeah. Um, where good looks actually are an advantage, <laughs> um, and a bit of you know whatever inherent glamour is not a bad thing. Yeah. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et and when they said, "How old are you?" and I said, "37." All four. Jo- Esther was there. Uh, um, Elaine Rich, producer of the show, was there, and a few other people were there. The head of casting was there. Lynn, I've forgotten her last name. Um, all the jaws hit the table, <laughs> and they said, and I left the room, and my agent was there as well, and he said, he came, had a meeting with them, came out and said, all right, from now on, you are 27. <laughs> if anybody asks, you are 27. <laughs> and I had no idea why. Yes. It, I, I was so stupid. I, you, had, you had no clue that, that, that Adam was supposed to be 24. No, no, not at all. And they were hideously specific about that in the script, and I didn't understand why. Anyway, I, then I went back home, and I was, you must come down, must do a screen test for the show. Um, I think it was at the very end of June, I'm guessing, if I recall. This is 27 years ago almost. <laughs> um, and the first person I ran into on, when I, on, on the lot outside the soundstage was Joan coming out, made up like I think she was at the time doing an Aaron Spelling M.O.W., called the Wild Women of Chastity Gulch. She's like a madam in a brothel. So she was, you know, the tits up to here. and She looked absolutely sensational. Did she ever not? I mean, seriously. Not that I was aware of. There you go. uh, She's one of those people who is always impeccable. She's breathtakingly beautiful woman. Yes. And I had, hello, Miss Collins, I'm Gordon Thompson. Oh, yes, you had to test the past my son. It's ridiculous, darling. You're much too old. (laughs) And I thought... It took me about four years to realize what a truly unpleasant, <laughs> nasty thing that was to say to an actor before a screen test, which obviously changed my life. Yes. I didn't have a clue. Well, Joan is, besides being a lot of wonderful things, she's also a major narcissist. <laughs> and her thought is always for herself. Always, 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 always. You're and much too old. I said, mm-hmm. I didn't say that. I said, finally, she asked me. <laughs> we went to Pamela Sue's wedding last September, I believe, and um, we were sitting together. Uh, it was an outdoor wedding, and it was gorgeous. And she said, Gordon, darling, how old are you? And I said, 32, Joan. You are a fucking liar, darling. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I had, I was having, I had a birthday, my 39th birthday, and the crew Huge surprise, saying happy birthday in the beginning of a take. It was so sweet. And she said, Gordon, darling, is it the big one? <laughs> I said, no, John, we're not, I'm not 40 yet. <laughs> we, know, we are walking genetic miracles, darling. <laughs> <laughs> so is it, is it true that she's only about a decade older than you? About that. How funny is that? And, yep. and was it a source of tension between you? Always, or was it a source of comedy? No, I, no. Joan takes herself very seriously. Yeah. And I discovered um, there was a, a British um, company did a, a documentary about Dynasty and the cast, and they got a bunch of us together um, with, uh, with JJ, John James, Jack mm-hmm. Coleman, Emma Sands, and myself to have a chat. And I discovered, I, I didn't know this at the time, that Joan complained to them endlessly about how old I was. <laughs> I mean, always. You know, she didn't, we didn't, we didn't, you know, because she realized, number one, you know, I was, I was pretty technically competent by the time I got to play Adam. 
um, which for the first couple of seasons was a great treat until it went to their heads and the show began to falter. But for the first couple of years, we had wonderful scenes. Oh, my God, yes. And she and I particularly. I mean, I was the only guy with any balls in that show, in my opinion. Um, John would disagree heartily. Um, but Adam was the only interesting man on the show. I completely agree with Blake you. Blake used to be interesting. When he set the dogs on Dale Robertson, I thought, this is wonderful. But then John wanted to be loved. Yes. And he and Aaron were best buddies. Well, and, and when he accidentally murdered Stephen's gay lover, I mean, that was that was huge at the time for the hero enormous, of the show. Enormous. Well, John wanted to be the good guy. Yeah. And Aaron agreed. And he, oh, and he looks like the good guy. I mean, he looks like, you know, your friendly grandfather. I mean, that's just, yep, that's, the, the, that's the role that... A tycoon is, by definition, a monster. You bet. When I did trade shows, I mean, traveling musical shows for General Motors and Chrysler in Canada in the early 70s and mid-70s... Um, Huge shows that would travel the country to promote next year's car to the local dealers and salesmen. And I dealt with the president of GM, U.S. and Canada. I mean, they wanted, they were all stage struck. They all wanted to be part of the show. And these they were red-faced. They drank. They were charming as hell. And you knew underneath they were <laughs> the most ruthless bunch uh-huh. you would ever, ever meet. Well, that's what Blake Carrington is. Yeah. And that's the kind of part now... I'd like to play Blake. <laughs> so I want somebody to find me the equivalent of Adam grown up, which is what Blake really it was. Wow. In my opinion. So you get the role, you start on the show, and you're not originally Adam Carrington. Who are you? Um, my, Michael, I've forgotten my last name. Also, by the way, the part was only supposed to last, I think, three or four episodes. Oh, wow, okay. Yep. And my screen test, and for which I have, I'm so proud of this. It was the best compliment I've ever gotten in my life. The crew applauded after my screen test. It never happened. They applauded. That blew me away. Again, I didn't know Hollywood. I, didn't mm-hmm. know, I knew from hard work. Mm-hmm. And I knew I was going to make a decent wage, finally, for the first time in my life. And that's all I knew. But yeah. I did not know that crews are a very tough bunch. Uh-huh. Well, let me tell you something. You know, when you stand there every day, it's just like... You know, working in a pizza joint. I mean, you know, when you're around pizza every day, it takes a it takes a damn fine pizza to to you know get your mouth watering. And I, okay. I'm sure it's the same on a movie set. I mean, it's, yep, yep, it is. You know, when they've seen it all and seen it all fifteen thousand times, it's it takes something really special to kind of break through. Well, that was a great crew, though I must say, it was a wonderful one from top to bottom. It was a sensational crew, always all the way through. So do you know if there was always going to be a long-lost son or if they kind of went back and tinkered with history as the, as the show progressed to create a role for you? I haven't a clue. I think that they, they invented the part okay. um, as a kind of sidebar for, for Alexis and Blake um, that would maybe involve Crystal okay. in a peripheral way um, to rattle a cage or two. But I think the response was, I gather, so positive that they realized that they had a tiger by the tail and they decided to keep exactly. to keep hold of it. And was the show the hot show at that time, or was it still on the rise? I was very lucky. I was on the final big rise. Joan, Joan's appearance on the last show of the first season was, was just a quacking across the screen. And then her first appearance on the first show of the, of the second season at Stephen's trial, yeah, the, the tri- at Blake's trial. Yeah. Stephen's Lover's murder. Mm-hmm. Um, that was when the audience, because the ratings were lousy the first season, mm-hmm. they almost were not going to renew it. Mm-hmm. 
and Joan appeared, and Aaron was her to say, in his wonderful, effusive way, you saved my show to her. <laughs> a big mistake. You don't say that to Joan because she gets very greedy. Um, but she had a lot to do with the salvation of Dynasty. Of course. Scrap heap. And then the audience increased, and then they introduced me. I was the last time they introduced a character really, really well. Yeah. They introduced me easily with some very nice writing. Mm-hmm. My screen test scene was actually the first scene that Joan and I had together, and it was very unusual for these, these days and never. It was a six-page scene. Now, that's a long scene, mm-hmm. and that was my screen test scene, and I thought, God, they're putting me through the loop <laughs> because they're not sure if I can act this kind of stuff, and they were, they, they were dead serious. You know, I tell you what, you made a good point about inter- introducing the character well, because after the show became such a huge success... I guess everybody wanted to be on it. You know, Diane Carroll wanted to be on it, and and it was, hey, let's bring in Allie McGraw, let's bring in Rock Hudson. You yeah. know, it was. It, you made a very good point about that that I that I hadn't ever pondered. That's. Yep, I think so. I mean, Amanda was not very well brought on as well. Dex Dexter, I think, was not brought in very well either. First of all, it's a, a name you you can't live with a name like that. And <laughs> that's Michael, a nine. Michael Michael was a nice man, good actor, effective. Um, Joan was very good for his career too. Yes. Um, as was Susan Lucci, but uh, it was it, I was the last time it happened properly. Wow! Because I hadn't gone. The show had not gone to their heads. Exactly. You know, there's something about too much money that you can have anything you want that lets you lose perspective and lose respect for the golden goose that is actually laying the eggs for them. <laughs> But conversely, on the flip side of that, you know, once once you once you're on a runaway rocket ship, it's all you can do just just to hang the hell on. I mean, seriously. Yes, but it seems to me that you would want to be very careful about your writing and your plotting and the stories you're telling. Yeah. Here you have a group of a wonderful-looking, screwed-up, emotional wreck <laughs> with more money than they can handle. More ambition, more greed. They're, 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 it's, it's a trainer waiting to happen. Yeah. But you can figure out <laughs> 16 ways to heaven, I should think, to figure out how to keep it on the air yeah. properly. Yeah. And, and you know, they had it going for a while. I mean, you know, they had it going for three or four seasons really well. Oh, at least. Yeah. At least. Okay, so you come on as Michael, if I'm not mistaken, it's Michael Torrance. Good for you, yes. Okay. And how do you discover that you are indeed Adam Carrington? Oh, I had a scene with, I had going to kill myself, I'm having a senior moment. They hired, and this was my first scene of the show, they hired an actor to play my grandmother who was in Orson Welles' Fireside Theater <laughs> originally. I forgot, you tell me her name, I know you will. She, was, she died recently, I think. She was uh, Helen Hunt's acting teacher. She was revered as an actor. And when I saw who was playing my granny, I thought, ooh, they're doing this up, Brown. They really have plans for this character, I thought. <laughs> um, I didn't quite quite know that it was actually only a three or four show gig at the time. Um, but she's the one, because she was sick in bed, she was busy dying, and um, she asked me to get something out of her, under her nighties in her bottom drawer of her dresser. I did. And it was, as I recall, a birth mug, a baby mug. Okay. And um, Was it not a silver rattle? Aha, good for you. It was a rattle. Okay. 
And she said, she told me the story that she, in fact, kidnapped me, and, and crazed with grief because her grandson had, and I think her son had died. Or something. And I was left outside a store by a careless <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mrs. Carrington my, in, in my carriage, and she nicked me. She kidnapped me. And um, then she finally fessed up on her deathbed, and she made me look in the mirror and say, my name is Adam Carrington. Wow. And it was one of the most – I remember I remember playing the scene to this second. I'm just recalling how mm-hmm. it felt. Corinne – oh, what was her name? She was so great. Anyway, and I'm, looked, I'm looking straight. And it's very hard to look into your, into your own eyes mm-hmm. any, at the best of times. And with a camera watching you do yes. it, it makes you doubly aware that you mustn't look like an ass. <laughs> and I did. And you, this is where I was very grateful that I have con- concentration to burn. My name is Adam Carrington. Again, Michael. My name Adam Carrington. Well, shivers. Uh, it was really exciting. It must have been chilling. I mean, seriously. Yeah, it really, really was. Oh. And so... You find out you're Adam Carrington, and you make your way to Denver, and um, and uh, the next, and then I meet with my mother Alexis. And were you kind of instantly evil and cruel, or 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 uh, I don't know? Did you did you really want to know your family? Did you really want to get revenge oh, on oh, your family? So, uh, listen, this is what's so wonderful about playing somebody so screwed up as Adam Carrington, because I personally, I mean, people say, "What are you? Are you guys like each other?" I said, "Yeah, we look alike," <laughs> and that's it. Adam was one of the most amoral, intelligent. They decided he had been he had a drug problem when he was in high school, um, to explain a few of the idiotic things he did, um, and the dangerous things he did. I mean he was he raped the butler's daughter, he uh-huh. tried to kill his father, he tried to kill his brother in law. He hated his brother in law. He was jealous of all the years he'd been robbed. Of and course. I thought about this and I thought, well, if you're that un unhappy, you can become deeply unpleasant <laughs> and i mean joan and i once discussed why we seem to be more successful than the other our counterparts on other shows at playing our quote-unquote stereotypical characters yeah and because we never saw them in black and white we saw them as characters so she made alexis and i'm i'm here to bear witness that joan had some wonderful moments as an actor mm-hmm. as alexis when she gave when she was given the chance mm-hmm. at the script and when she was given the chance by herself, um, there was one moment that was actually wistful that I had with Joan. Um, it involved food, of course, in her penthouse. <laughs> Everything always involved food. Uh, but we, we played the part. We didn't play the stereotype. And that made, I think, the performances um, work. I agree with you, and you know, you both found little ways to humanize those characters who, on the face of it, were completely evil. Yes, exactly, exactly. Wow. So, tell me about working with Joan. You know, my sense is that the two of you had a bit of a contentious relationship at first, and you kind of developed an enormous respect for each other over time. Is that fair? She knew right away when we first sat down to read through the scene before my screen test um, that I could act. So, professionally. I, I, we were, I, I knew she could act. Yeah, um, obviously. And nothing, also may I say, I was very lucky I was not in awe of anybody in the cast, the way I would have been had I been faced with Olivier as daddy kind of thing. 
John's a very good actor, mm-hmm. but he's not a scary good actor. He's just John Forsythe, very good actor, <laughs> with a great resume. Uh-huh. And um, so she knew I could act, and I knew she could. So the thing, the age thing never really went away. Um, <laughs> at one point, I remember she was in a hospital bed, and I forgot what the circumstance was, and I was visiting her. And she looked up at me, and she said, quietly and privately, Gordon, darling, I have feelings for you which are far from the tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Joan. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> but to her great credit, she played my mother. She did. And she hated the age, the, the similarity. I mean, she's 10 years older than maybe. Um, it was biologically, practically impossible for her yeah. to be my mother. Yeah, of course. Um, but also, but I, it worked. Lucky. I looked. They're very specific in the script. They said he was this blah, 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 of 24. Uh-huh. And I think that was a sop to Joan. <laughs> because she'd never had, I said, Joan, does it really bother you? Is there something? <laughs> I've never, as an actor, I had never had children more than 12 or 13. <laughs> and suddenly she had four <laughs> kids, all of whom could vote. <laughs> you know, and, that's scary. And drink and bear her grandchildren. Oh, you bet. <laughs> oh, you bet. <laughs> But well, so, so professionally, we all always got along well. Um, you know, the two of you worked on screen. It just worked. There was no denying that it worked. I agree. And, you know, it's it's quite funny that, that you would mention the, the hospital bed thing because, you know, this this may be just me reading into it, but I always kind of, in watching your performances, I always kind of felt that, that Adam had a little bit of a crush on his mother. Oh, without question. Like there was a little bit of an Oedipus complex going on there because – you know, he didn't grow up with her, and so he met her as an adult, and, uh, you know, she was by, by far the only woman in his sphere that, that could even, you know, hold a candle to him. I mean, yes. or keep up with him, you know. Yep, exactly. I always thought, I must say, that because the only woman I wasn't related to on the show was Crystal, that it would have been sensational <laughs> for Adam to somehow seduce Crystal. I thought that would, be, would have been a really electrifying story. It would not have been incest. It would have enraged his father to the point of homicide. And it would have tickled, I think, would have made the audience nuts. See, but, I, don't, I don't know if the audience would have gone for that. I really don't. Oh, I bet they would have. Just because Blake and Crystal were the you know, rock of, of the, oh, I know, of the show. Fair, fairly or not, they were the, you know. Oh, without question. They were the emotional center of the show. Yeah. That's exactly where John wanted to be. Yeah. So, tell me about working with John. Did, did you, did you, um, you know, I don't think he's ever really gotten the due that he deserves for, for being, a, like you said, a very good actor. Um, not, maybe not. I hope he has because he's, he's, John is, is, is a real renaissance man. Um, he is, he, and he had a wonderful wife called Julie who died several years ago. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, he, he raised horses. Uh, he was a fan of boxing, ballet, basketball, uh, you name it, uh, antiques. Just, he was all over the map. He, he loved, he relishes still his life. Mm-hmm. He's got a great second wife. Um, and still looks fantastic. Oh, John's wonderful looking. Wonderful looking. And he is, I think now, I'm guessing, 89. Yeah, I was about to say he must be 90, but... Yep, close. Wow. Close. Because the last time we all got together, which was two years ago in San Mateo, um, for that 
CBS, mm-hmm. well, ABC didn't do it, but CBS did the Dynasty reunion. Wasn't that bizarre? It was very strange. <laughs> and John was not particularly well. It, Linda, I saw Linda about two months ago, and she said that he's now back to his old self. Okay. Because he was a bit shaky two years ago. Yeah. Um, but he looked wonderful. He looked absolutely wonderful. Again, the god of genes was very good. <laughs> Indeed, you, it was. You were kind of blessed as a as a family. So, um, tell tell me this: who who ran that set? You know, my understand. I've never been on a movie set. I've never been on a TV set. But you know, kind of my understanding, just from you know reading things and looking at things, is that even in kind of an ensemble situation like you were, every set has the alpha dog, and you know, with with it's two dog. kind of distinctly powerful personalities like John and Joan. And, you know, kind of the fragile princess like Linda sandwiched in between them. Who ran that set? John. I learned how, to, I, since then, I've had the chance once or twice to be in his position um, on various sets. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't have to look far for the, what I had to do, how I had to behave. It was easy because I love, I love my job. I, this is my church. I respect my job and I love my job. You bet. So does John. And it showed. And he loved his profession. And he loved working with fellow professionals in every sphere of the business. And he set the standard, the gold standard. He set it financially. He was contractually, he had to be better paid than anybody else by a certain figure. And that was in stone. Okay. And that bled down through every layer of the show. John was the alpha dog on the show. So no matter what Joan got, John always got a little bit more. Always. Wow. I don't think I don't think that I've ever heard, I don't think we ever heard that you know everybody always talked about Joan's salary and I don't think we ever heard that. I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> that's 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 pretty impressive. So you Joan know. Joan told me that. Wow. In Toronto in 1994. Wow. So John and Joan were were very convincing kind of you know bitter rivals on screen. Did that carry off off screen or were they? Yeah, pretty well. Pretty were, well. It was John and Linda in one camp and Joan in the other. Wow. And kind of, you know, satellites revolving around each one? Not many satellites. They each had you know, their assistants and stand-ins and stuff like that. I mean, Joan had Judy Breyer, who was just wonderful as her assistant. Judy was her right hand. Yeah. Um, John had a wonderful man called Benny, who also helped with his horses. And uh, Linda had, um, oh, God, Bunky, Bunky Johnson. Uh, another sensational woman um, who looked a bit like Linda actually just gorgeous gorgeous woman and they had they had their support Um, but first and foremost the show and the supplied from everybody the show was the most important thing even for Joan was the show ultimately was the most important Mm -hmm. I think the true narcissist in the group was Joan yeah Uh, John and Linda never struck me as being either one of them is narcissistic. Um, Joan's ego is just enormous. Yeah. <laughs> She's an alpha girl in a very, very beautiful body. <laughs> and she plays the part to, uh, you know, perfection. <laughs> to perfection. Yep, she does. How about behind the scenes? Were the Shapiros in charge, or was it Aaron Spelling all the way? Um, it was the Shapiros, basically, because it was their baby. Yeah. Um. In fact, uh, it does, it, that, that comes to a point. Um, at the time that a man called Bill Ball was one of the producers of the show, um, producers come and go. 
Um, and they're the ones who answer to the head writers. And we were at a dinner party, a bunch of us, um, at Bill's house. And um, he told us that one morning, one o'clock in the morning, the phone rang. It was Esther. Get a pencil. Get a piece of paper. Richard's had an idea. <laughs> Aliens! <laughs> That's a true story. Follow up. I knew somebody who was an associate producer who was in on all the meetings who said, the start of the next production meeting, Esther said, the first person who laughs is fired. <laughs> Fallon is going to be abducted by aliens. Oh, Jesus. Yep. <laughs> One o'clock in the morning, Richard's had an idea, get a piece of paper, get a pencil. <laughs> aliens. That's how it was born. They were in charge of the show. Wow. And But I assume that Aaron was around pretty well, Aaron regularly. Was, I mean, he didn't get to be Aaron Spelling for nothing. Exactly. He was extraordinary. He knew everybody's name. Everybody, every, the first time I went out with wardrobe to buy clothes, um, the driver had been with Aaron for 20 years. Uh, he knew everybody's name. He inspired an enormous loyalty. And everybody ever, ever worked with him. How great. Yeah. He was a wonderful man. How great. Did you ever get to go to the house? No, I never did. I never did. Oh. You know, I, I, again, you know, I, obviously I've never been, but we've, we, you know, we've all heard the rumors and the stories, and it sounds like, uh, I, I think palace isn't even the right word for it. I don't know what the right word for it is. It, it sounds like Isn't just the a, largest private house in the in this continental U.S.? Or absolutely. Something like 140 rooms or something? It's 54,000 square feet. I mean, good heavens. And she has a gift wrapping room. <laughs> There's a bowling alley. <laughs> Nolan Miller, who, who they used to, because Nolan used to live with him, um, he designed most of the clothes yeah. for Dynasty. Yes. For the girls. Um, well, they would give each other the most outrageous presents. Because Aaron made Nolan's career for him, uh-huh. um, and oh, Nolan has never forgotten that. Um, one year, Christmas morning, there was a Rolls Royce with the pink slip in Nolan's driveway. Well, how do you top that? You can't <laughs> do it. Well, he had to. He gave them a garden of a hundred white, two hundred white rose bushes one year, planted in a bed in their on their property. Now that's going to run you several thousand bucks. It just they. It was insane. The first time I met Candy at a Golden Globe Awards, I've forgotten which one it was. She was wearing $6 million worth of time <laughs> with an armed guard at all times. And they were all hers, ass- oh, yeah. assumedly. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Scary stuff. Unbelievable. So, well, I mean, Charlie's Angels, but those girls, uh, each one of them had, this is three beautiful young women. Each one had a wardrobe, a makeup artist, and a hairdresser. That's nine professionals mm-hmm. looking after three pretty girls. <laughs> That's looking after your cast. You bet. And, uh, you, you know, look at all the shows he had on at his peak. I mean, my God, you can... Well, it was called Aaron's Broadcast. Yeah, exactly, exactly. How funny. Yep. So, uh... How do I want to say that? Having having watched the people on the set who were younger than you, yeah, and you were all kind of dealing with this this massive you know global fame and notoriety that was so far beyond your wildest imaginings. Would you say that you were that that your 
grateful that it happened to you at 37 instead of, say, 20? Without question. Because, quite simply, um, if you are faced with that, you're not going to make a whole, I mean, the kind of millions of dollars they're making today. That, that didn't obtain. Exactly. In the 80s. Also, never without his spelling. Aaron never gave his money away. But <laughs> anything you wanted, somebody would get for you. You bet. A sex, drug, alcohol, cars, anything you wanted, some probably unsavory individual would see to it that you got it. Uh-huh. And when you're 22 and you're suddenly making six figures a year, uh-huh. and you for the first time in your life... And everybody knows who you are. Everybody. And, and eventually in six months, yes, most of the globe knows who you are. Exactly. Who, who, who has the strength to say no? If you're 22, you shouldn't have to say no. You learn what you need in life. Yes. I, when I was 37, I knew what I didn't need. Yes. So I was, I was, I was an, adult, an, an adult and very grateful for it. But I'll wager that even then you were faced with your temptations. Serendipity. I'll bet that... If it happened to me when I was 22, I wouldn't be here today. But I'll wager that even at 37 you were faced with your temptations. Not many. Really? No, no. Because I, I didn't like Los Angeles, oh. <laughs> uh, for one thing. I missed the climate in Canada a lot. Um, I missed my friends. I made friends here, obviously. But um, no, I, I've, I've never been attracted to anything or anyone obviously shallow, any experience that is ordinary. So drugs didn't interest me, for instance. Wow. Um, I remember being at a dinner party once, and dessert included co- lines of Coke. <laughs> and I didn't want any. And, oh, can I have yours? Yes, sure. Oh, I, don't want it. <laughs> um, I knew I didn't want it. But how about just how about just the lures of financial freedom? Um, <coughs> they weren't that strong because I was supporting a common law, former common law relationship household in Toronto. Okay. And um, she was. I have a sense of responsibility, so more or less anything she really needed, she got. And it was because it was common law. It was um, post-tax dollars. <coughs> so to give her a thousand dollars, I had to make three. Okay. And I had to raise, support myself here in L.A. Mm-hmm. Which is not cheap. So there wasn't an enormous amount of money rolling around, even at the best of times. Okay. And yeah, that yeah. <coughs> Again, also, I didn't um, want great big fat car I didn't want I didn't want all this shit because I knew what it meant yeah good for you <laughs> I wanted to help people and I wanted to be lavish with people I liked mm-hmm. and I wanted to be good to my former common-law wife and make sure the cats were all fed and, stuff, <laughs> and the dogs fed <laughs> and I wanted to eat well and dress nicely I missed that I must say being able to walk in and see I have that Armani and that Hugo box now <laughs> Those days are gone. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully they'll return, but they're gone. Yes. But if you, if that is delicious, I must say. When you can, you know, without a blink, order Don Perignon. Or hello. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, if you had been 25... I would have ordered too much Don Perignon, not been here today. <laughs> so isn't it funny what a difference just a decade makes? Oh, God, yes. Wow. How great. 
Well, a decade is ten. Let's face it, it's ten years. Yeah. And that's I don't care how old you are or how young you are. The younger you are, the longer the decade is. Mm-hmm. And any decade is a pretty sizable length of time in mm-hmm. your life. I mean, we're we're almost finishing up the first decade of the new, the famous millennium. <laughs> Which is so hard to believe. My God. Yeah, I agree with you. It's it you know in some ways it seems like Y2K was an eternity ago and and some days it seems like it was just you know yesterday. Exactly. I mean it's it's really crazy. Yep. So for all the outrageous glitz and glamour and you know kind of the outlandish situations of the show, do you ever think that that show was remarkably progressive for its time? Not particularly. Only in one area really, and that's the character Stephen. I think it was very brave of the Shapiro's to introduce a gay character who was very major to the show. I do, too. It was very brave of both actors to play the part. Um, Al, actually, we, we discuss, he, I can't really talk for him. He did, we did discuss why he was replaced, and I've forgotten the exact reasons why. It involved one of the producers, and it was very unpleasant. Yeah. Um, Jack got... He, I remember being around for... His screen test, because he screen tested shortly after I began that season, okay. in 82. Um, and good for Jack. Brave thing to do. Exactly. I just think that in terms of showcasing homosexuality in kind of refreshingly non-stereotypical ways, yes. and in portraying women in positions of real power and prestige, which was, you know, the nation was just kind of coming around to that at that time. Absolutely. Uh I think and and kind of you know very slyly taking those ideas and dressing them up in the package of big hair and broad shoulder pads and you know the whole glitz and glamour thing. Oh yes. And yes. kind of kind of making those ideas more palatable to uh, a nation that was just kind of starting to come around. Yes. I think really made that show, like I said, remarkably progressive for its time. I really do. Well, I think well you see I was part of it and I I mean I didn't I didn't watch it for the first year I was on. Um, I don't know why not, but I didn't. Um, I remember talking to Bill Liversage, who was the head of the Teamsters for the show, the driver. And um, he said, what did you think of the show last night? I said, I, d- I didn't see it. He said, really? He said, no, I didn't. I said, do you watch? He said, I don't guess I do. Because I want to see the result of the work of all these people, meaning the crew, the yeah. cast, the writers, the producers, yeah. everybody. And I'm thinking like a selfish little egotistical actor. <laughs> I don't. I hate watching myself. I always have. I don't want to watch myself. Said I to myself. But not thinking that just maybe Gordon. I knew I was part of a team, but the teamwork stopped when it hit the airwaves. Well, I've smartened up. Lickety split. And yes. Thank you very much, Bill Liverstage, <laughs> who wised me up to what an ass I was. Wow. Um, and I began to watch, and I really enjoyed it. Or not. <laughs> but I, 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 your take on the show is probably accurate. Very accurate. Certainly, in terms of, of um, women in power and um, gay people who are treated with some respect by writers and directors, yeah, and actors, and and shown in ways that they weren't shown to that time. No, not with Billy Crystal being funny on so exactly, or you know the you know the the limp wrist, the, the swishy the walk, the yeah, yeah, camp crap. So. Um, can we talk about the Rock Hudson episode? If you want to. Did anyone know at the time that he had AIDS? Uh, I, I don't mean, think so. It was quite obvious that something was wrong, but did anyone know 
exactly well, what it was. He was shocked when he first appeared because all of us knew him from the film and the Millen and Wife, etc. Um, my makeup man, Jack Freeman, had been Rock's, Rock's makeup man for his whole film career, practically. Yeah. And they were good friends. And um, Rock used to be, I mean, like 10 minutes makeup done in his heyday. Uh, Jack used to take something like an hour and a half to do his, to do his face and when he was doing Dynasty. Um, what just floored me when I heard that Esther had flown to Paris to meet with him um, was, uh, without doing any research, without doing any kind of asking anybody any questions. Yeah. He was in Paris to take the cure uh-huh. for AIDS. Uh-huh. And she sat across a cafe table with an, her movie idol of all time, uh-huh. Rock Hudson, and all she saw was her movie idol. Of, of course, yeah. And he, at his, in his heyday, he was the best-looking man. Oh, you bet. Big, that wonderful voice. He had a great voice, great presence, and handsome as hell. On, and there was this skeleton across. She didn't see that. Wow. The camera saw it, mm-hmm. and we all knew that he was ill. We didn't quite know how ill. And um, he actually, what Rock did in '85 was he gave AIDS a very public face. Yes. Which, you know, in, in retrospect was probably, you don't want to say it's the best thing that could have happened, but, but if something like that was going to happen, in some ways it was the best thing that could have happened. Oh, without question. Without it's, question. You know, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's horrible to say that. It's, but no, it's not. It's, 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 it's a true fact. He, his, his last, certainly posthumous act was, he gave face to a disease which was and continues to ravage mm-hmm. our population. Mm-hmm. Did you ever interact personally with him? Um, I think I was introduced three times. He was out of it because he never remembered anybody. <laughs> and they, again, they made big mistakes. All he ever acted, the only person he ever acted with really was Linda. Yeah. And I think with John once or twice. They say we all, they, they should have included him. It was a wonderful character. Yeah. And we had, like it or not, he was a major movie star in his day. He didn't look good, fine. He was still rock goddamn Hudson. So use him <laughs> for the show, not give Linda a, a bit of, you know, a bit of love interest. Or uh-huh. Or, or a bit of tension in her, in her too happy marriage. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Silly. Really silly. And uh, the famous kiss, I was not around for the kiss. Uh, I finally saw it on a rerun, I think. And uh, it was a peck. <laughs> There's nothing remotely to do with exchanging bodily fluids. Of course, yeah. First of all, Linda wouldn't have agreed to that, and Hudson would not have done it. Yeah. He was apparently dreading it. I believe I read in someone's book um, that he was really, really terrified of the prospect wow. because the ignorance about yeah. how AIDS was transmitted in those days was was just blinding. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't know if he could maybe infect her. Mm-hmm. So it was a very, it was a very chaste kiss. I mean, at that time, people thought AIDS could be transmitted through tears. Uh-huh. You've got to work very hard to get AIDS. <laughs> you have to work very hard to get it. <laughs> you almost have to be trying. Yes. Yep. So, I mean, was there a total pandemonium on the set when it was announced over the summer? That, that I don't think so, because um, we... I don't know if we'd wrapped by then. I don't remember. Okay. I'm sorry. I remember that... Um, an actor whose first name was Paul. He played a chauffeur, I think. Um, and he was a very um, promiscuous 
very handsome, very <laughs> low self-esteem young man who also contracted HIV and died of AIDS. I remember seeing in, sitting in a, in a bathroom stall on one of the, off one of the sets at uh, Warner Hollywood Studios, and somebody had written one of those charming things you see on bathroom walls, A, period, I, period, D, period, S, period, another infected dynasty star. Wow. Oh, ugly, mm. ugly, ugly. Uh-uh-uh. That wouldn't be written today. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. Wow. You know, not, I mean, not even a redneck jerk would write that <laughs> on the bathroom stall. But again, uh, you know, who knew from her back then? I mean, exactly, exactly. Wow. No, Rock and Ed and and uh, Paul, and um, well, Helmut Berger. That's what John called Helmut Berger. Another hideous mistake they made. Or Pamela Sue as a goodbye gift to her when she left the show. They hired this ass. Oh, he was a fool. Oh, he was a fool. He he had one point. He had JJ told me. John James told me that um, one of his early scenes with him. They were they were having a fight, and in the close-up, Helmut said to him, "Do they use the sound? <laughs> do they use the sound? Hardly enough, Helmut. Yes, they do. This is not. We're not working for Visconti, or anybody. We're not. You know, working for the people who are you know our sugar daddies. But we have to loop everything in six different languages. They use the sound. Oh, what an idiot! What a fool!" That's Helmut. hysterical. <laughs> so tell me about the Moldavia massacre. Well, that was probably the greatest um, cliffhanger ever written. Um, and and the the worst fallout, I suspect. Oh, absolutely. Um, because I think that was the season that we finished number two in the ratings and number one. It was one year where we were actually number one yeah. for the year. And that was it. And the trouble was the follow-up uh-huh. and the gain. This is a quote, and I, I have to say it probably is not apocryphal. I, so I probably should keep my big mouth shut, but I'm not going to. Um, first production meeting for the following season, um, the director had been promised helicopter shots, massive extras, I mean the works as the follow-up to the episode, the cliffhanger, that made the show number one in the uh-huh. country. And Aaron was heard to say, now we're a hit, we don't <laughs> need to spend any more money. Wow. So, what you got was a shot that I likened to Noah's Ark. <laughs> All the dead bodies, and two by two, we <laughs> leave the building. Oh. Two by two, that's it. The only non-survivors were Ally McGraw because she couldn't act, and Billy Campbell, Billy Campbell because he didn't want to sign them the contract. <laughs> <laughs> and Joan was on strike that year because she thought, good, I'm going to have a big fat raise. <laughs> so rather than do anything thinking about this, they just took Joan's name, Alexis, and they changed it to Linda. Alexis became Crystal. This is the fact. They didn't alter a single syllable. They just changed the name of the person saying the line. So Linda was forced to say things only Alexis would ever say. Oh, my God. That's very careless stuff. Wow. That's sloppy, careless, shit, unprofessional behavior. (laughs) And if an actor behaved like that, he'd be fired. Exactly. Well, these people, these writer-producers, behave like that. Wow. And they began to kill the show. And Aaron got cheap. 
at the exact moment when you finally say, now, mm-hmm. Adam, we can continue this for as long as we like, if we pay proper attention. Uh-huh. And uh, this was the exact same time that, that Dynasty II, the Colby's, came, came into being. Dynasty II, the Colby's, came in oh, yes. th- that, that season, did it not? Probably, yep. Yeah. And did, did, did you and the cast ever, ever resent that show for existing? I mean... I doubt it. I thought it was a mistake, but I mean, I remember Esther saying that ABC had pressured them to invent a spinoff. Yeah. That wasn't Falcon Crest, the spinoff of that Dallas? Uh, Knott's Landing was. Knott's Landing, yeah. Right. Um, that's so much TV I watch. Um, <laughs> and so they finally they, they gave in. It, means, it meant more money, more work for everybody. But it did also leach a lot of energy from the Golden Goose. So and their attention was divided. Because it was the same people running both shows, yes? As I recall, yes. I mean, it wasn't... Like like today you have CSI Miami and you have CSI New York and you have CSI, but they're three completely different shows with completely know. different creative teams. But okay. But back then it was the same creative teams doing two shows. I don't know. I, I, I doubt that very much. I know they're two separate producers, two sets of writers. Yeah. Um, the Shapiros were in charge of both shows, because certainly, Yeah. Uh, and as was Aaron, because his name was on the credits, uh, and he took personal pride in everything he ever did. Yeah. Um, but, no, I think they had, like, they had separate casts. We, there were, there were crossover. I, I did, I think, two or three cold mm-hmm. Um I think several of you did guest shots over there. Just we all to, did. I think most of us did. Yeah. And did you do that with good spirits, or were you kind of... Oh, I loved it. I mean, first of all, I got to work with Barbara Stanwyck. Oh, yes. And Charlton Heston. Yes. Wow. Um, the world's greatest bad actor. <laughs> you have to, if you, if you think... Uh, no, I mean, took himself so seriously... We all have sets of chairs on the set with their names on them. Well, Chuck's, I used to call him Chuckles, not to his face, but, yeah, never, but Chuckles is what I call him personally and privately, um, had his Moses chair from Ten Commandments. Big oak leather motherfucker. That was Charlton's set chair. And I remember once uh, a scene I had with John James in the library on the Colby set, um, it was a scene, and after our scene, Chuckles had a scene to do on the same set. And um, J.J. and I had a huge fight because Fallon had had a dream that she had been raped by her brother, me. But Emma Sams told John James, in character, that she'd been raped by her brother. And he tries to beat the shit out of me, and we have a big, fat yelling match. Well, Chuckles heard the last take, obviously, behind the flat, when he's going to rehearse. And he said to me, when I passed by, we had met. Yes, when in doubt, we all shout, don't we? I thought, you pompous cockroach. Do you read the script? And I, I had not seen it at that time, but I recommend you see a movie that he made with Demille called The Greatest Show on Earth, I think. Okay. Um, he plays the circus <laughs> manager, and he wears an, an Aussie outland, outback hat, you know, the kind of thing with the, the brim curled up on one side. And, um, uh-huh. and you watch very carefully. He actually chucks himself on the chin. <laughs> he sort of, you know, the way you do that, something under somebody's chin, you go a little yep. punch, you go, ooh. Uh-huh. 
He does that to himself. <laughs> please watch. Please tape it. Please put it on a reel for yourself. It is the single silliest piece of acting I've ever seen in my life. How great. <laughs> Stan McKnight, on the other hand, was unbelievable. And she liked me a lot, which blew me away. And her approval meant a great deal to me. And uh, she was a treat and a half to work with. And I regard that because she, to me, is one of the greatest old dollies, uh-huh. old dollies around. She and Sylvia Sidney were it. Yeah. And she was, she was quite old by that time, yes? Oh, yeah, she was. And, and just hung in there like a pro. Oh, she's been miraculous. Wow. Disciplined like you wouldn't believe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they had the great Ricardo Montalban over there for a while. And oh, they had... he was so, what a wonderful man. And, you know, he just passed away yesterday. Yes, I know. That's... I know. Oh. And he, he had a, what a happy man, too. Oh, and just, you know, talk about someone who never got his due. I mean, you know, if you watch those old Fantasy Island episodes, he was, you know... I mean, for uh, yes, the show was kind of mindless and just fun, but he was great on that show. He had enormous gravitas. Exactly. As a human being, as a man, as, and as an actor. He had huge dignity, great wit, charm to burn, a great marriage, which always helped. <laughs> Georgiana and he were like steel together. Um, they were, I mean, just, he, was, he was miraculous. And he had a wonderful, wonderful life. And he must have loved Aaron, and Aaron must have just adored him. Oh, of course. Of course. Wow. He never, ever misbehaved. <laughs> ever. Because, just... again, respect for what he did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And who he did it with. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's, in some ways, that's the key to life. You know, love what you do, do what you love. And have respect for everybody else's passion as exactly. well. Exactly, exactly. Wow. So <laughs> it was a heartfelt sigh. <laughs> I'm allotted a, a, a one or two of those. Okay. So the Colbys is on the air for a couple of seasons. Uh-huh. And Dynasty has clearly hit its peak and is on the downhill slide, clearly. Yes. Um, you know, whereas in the early years it was clear that you were all making something special, on the other side of that, were you all just kind of going through the motions in the last couple of years? I don't know. Speaking for myself, no. Okay. Because, um, again, I was very lucky. I got to work with people like Leanne Hunley. Yes. Um, who was a miracle of sweetness and radiance and just plain gorgeous. Yes, and still is. Oh, she's breathtaking. Um, and, again, the crew um, was so steadfast and so good. And I, I mean, I, I was up in 89, 10 years ago, for God's sake, Golden Globe, for my, the 1988 um, season. Uh-huh. An insane category, but I was <laughs> good for me. But it was, they were so careless. I mean, the production company was so screwed up. They were dealing with such crap with the network. Uh, Brandon Stoddard, who ran ABC at the time, he and Aaron did not get along. And he didn't want have much to do with Mr. Spelling. Well, you know, I mean, how many how many network regimes did Aaron survive at ABC? I don't know. I mean, good Lord. Well, finally, he just didn't survive Brandon Stark. Mm-hmm. And, um, but at one point, um, my agent called me and said, Gordon, the, Globe, the Golden Globe Committee, the, 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 the critics, whatever, um, want to know who's going to pay for your limousine. And I thought, 
Excuse me? <laughs> it's, it's been a tough season for this show. Yeah. One of the few decent spots, little shiny nuggets, is the fact that one of the cast members of your show has been nominated for a pretty swift award. Mm-hmm. And you haven't yet uh, sent a check for the limo? Wow. Well, they were embarrassed and they did, but I didn't get a fucking rose out of that. <laughs> not a thing, nothing. Not even a, not even a, a, a heartfelt no, card. Not a letter, not a nothing. <laughs> Jeez Louise. Yeah, yeah. And you know that category. I mean, the supporting categories in the Golden Globes are always insane because oh, ludicrous. They kind of lump TV shows with movies, with miniseries, and just kind of yes. it's kind of like throwing pasta against the wall. Whatever sticks. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Brandon. I suck that year. Do you do you remember who who you were up against in that? Kirk Kirk Cameron, um, one of the actors from the Billionaire Boys Club, um, and another two, and then the man who won. Oh God! It was for um, a movie made for television. He, he he's a Semi-famous German movie star. Okay. Wonderful actor. See, I should have Googled this. <laughs> I should have this info at my fingertips. Stop it. Sorry. Right. <laughs> you can look it up. Golden Globe history. <laughs> but did you have fun at the Globes? Oh, I had a wonderful time. A really wonderful time. Wow. So, were you all kind of angry or disappointed or bitter that ABC really, you know, refused to give Dynasty the dignity of a, of a proper final episode to tie up all the loose ends? I don't know. Again, you were talking 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, I, we, nobody was happy. We all felt that we'd been thrown out with the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. Um, we, we did have a meeting, I think, at the Shapiro's house at one point to talk about issues we had with the writing of the show. Um, because edicts used to come down, not a comma will be changed without a phone call to, the, to Aaron, to, to Esther's office. I mean, come on. We all fiddled with our lines all the time. Yeah. Uh, we had to. Um, because often they were lousy lines. Especially as the, as the material got increasingly more ludicrous in the, yes, yes. In the final seasons. I'm sure yep. you... Oh, I mean, who was the last that... Um, Amanda was seen, uh, played by Karen. Oh God! I wish I could remember her name. I'm sorry, but she was adrift in a rowboat, <laughs> 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 and they got rid of Dama, Leanne. Yes. Uh, zip zip. Suddenly she was she was, in, she was in the hall of the mansion with a couple of suitcases. Wow. That was it. Goodbye. Uh huh. What? Oh. That gorgeous girl, that the possibilities that plot had. Oh, Jesus Christ. So silly. A gorgeous girl who had talent. Oh, wonderful. Talent to burn. Funny and real and emotional and empathetic and mm-hmm. sympathetic. Oh, she was just mm-hmm. miraculous. And Linda decided she wanted to leave, and they gave her a ludicrous exit story. Oh, so stupid. <coughs> so damn stupid. It's... Do you, do you remember that final episode with with Blake getting shot? And no, I don't. Okay, Blake got shot. I think Fallon was trapped beneath the mansion for some reason. <laughs> and uh, you shoved Alexis and Dex over the balcony. 
That I remember. In the final episode. And I'm wondering if that episode was written before they knew about the cancellation or after. I have no idea. Okay. You'd have to talk to Esther to okay. find her. You know, it's it's hard to believe that it's hard for me to believe that if they knew about the cancellation, that they wouldn't try to tie it all up somehow, instead of just leaving everything hanging like that. Well, they wrote the the Moldavian massacre, knowing it was going to be picked up. Yeah. Um, but they killed everybody off, as far as they, so we all knew. We were all prone on the floor. <laughs> I remember a friend of mine gave me a T-shirt with bullet holes in it, saying, "I survived Amanda's wedding," which I was like. Very funny thing. <laughs> and uh, the trouble is, too many of us survived Amanda's wedding. Yeah. They should have, for instance, Christ, if Joan is on strike, have her in a coma, in a hospital bed, bandaged to hell, <laughs> unconscious, and her life in danger. You've got a major character, but the world knows she's on strike, but let's use it. Yes. Let's have somebody, maybe almost a real victim of this. The character that everybody watches for and roots for. Wow. Yep. But they never did. Wow. Well, nobody was scratched. <laughs> and, you know, uh, uh, if I, I remember right... all over again, Brandon. Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, if I remember right, they, the, uh, the people behind the massacre, they all gave, they gave you like four hours to get on a plane or something, and they just let you go. I don't remember. <sighs> it, it's been so long, too, but it seems like... It, it, it seems as though the whole thing was written so that it was all for nothing. Oh, absolutely. The, the, uh, the outcome should have been as spectacular mm-hmm. as the event. Mm-hmm. And it's instead, again, Noah's Ark two by two <laughs> with the, the commandos who burst through. Wasn't um, Bo Hopkins um, ahead, the, leader, the leading commando or whatever? Um, was it Linda's former husband or something? I've forgotten. Anyway, that we this sort of terrorist cell we were taken to, yes, I mean that we were just sort of you know shoved off, mm-hmm. as you say, with with four hours. There's a plane goodbye, uh, and never dark in Moldavia again. <laughs> wow, you, you know, you only get one chance to jerk around your audience like that, and and you know it's it's kind of a, a fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, you know. Exactly, exactly. Wow. So Dynasty comes to an, a kind of inglorious end. Sadly, yes. <laughs> and so there's about a year and a half there, and uh, between that and you going to Santa Barbara, what do you do in that year and a half? What what is the? Do you go back to Canada? Do you I stay do go here? Back to Canada to do. Do you know what a panto is? No. A pantomime is it's a British tradition of um, it, it's a Christmas uh, show basically, and um, they take a fairy tale, uh, Cinderella, Puss in Boots, uh, whatever. And they put together an enormous, big review musical comedy about it. Okay. And um, somebody in Canada had tried it several years previous, previously, and I had done one tour. And I was asked to do Dick Whittington um, by a friend of mine called Ross. Oh, God, Gordon, another senior moment. Um, <laughs> Ross is married to Karen Kane, who runs the National Ballet of Canada used to be a great classical ballerina, um, Ross Petty, um, asked me to come to Canada to do a tour of Dick Whittington across the country, 11 weeks. Sure. Um, that was a highlight for me. Um, I got to be on a stage, big stages across the country, um, working my 
butt off. Yes. So we're doing 10 shows a week in theaters from two to 3,000 seats. Um, just was wonderful. Just wonderful. Wow. And um, that was, and I did, I think, one or two bits and pieces of television. And then. You uh, know, af- after doing seven years of the same character and, you know, kind of. But what a character. Sorry. What a great character. Of course. But, you know, it's the same set, it's the same character, it's the same people. And it must have been thrilling for the actor in you to kind of get out there again and, you know, something new every night, something different. It must have, oh, it must have touched off something inside you. Well, it just, it, because I, like most people of my generation, I'm, I'm a theater baby. I mean, I was, that's where you, be, you begin. That's your crucible, mm-hmm. is the theater. And it has something unique that no other medium has. When I, Linda um, had made her stage debut two, year, two and a half years ago in a play called Legends. Um, she did it with Joan. I saw it here in Los Angeles. Uh, it was an awful play. Supporting uh, <laughs> cast was wonderful. Joan was dreadful. <laughs> Linda was very, very good. Because Joan had contempt for material, and it showed. Yeah. Linda had respect for it because she was her debut, for God's sake. Yes. And to make your debut on a stage at 64. You bet. Really going some. Mm-hmm. I have hats off. And she was very, very good. And I hope she tries it again. Wow. Because she, she should be on stage. <laughs> she should be. And, but you know... Anyway, it's, it's, it's a whole set of different set of muscles. Yeah. It's all telling the truth, by the way. Every medium demands the truth from the actor. There's a wonderful little story, which I don't think is apocryphal, when Olivier first was asked to act at Chichester on a thrust stage. Um, he asked Christopher Plummer who had worked on the Stratford Festival stage in, in Canada, which is a great thrust stage designed by Tanya Mosevich. Um, he asked Plummer what it was like. And Plummer said, well, you can't lie because you're, you're visible. From every side of your body is visible uh-huh. to somebody in the audience at all <coughs> times. And believe me, your back can tell a lie as well as your face. <laughs> So yes, theater was it was it was wonderful to reconnect with that because wow. I didn't do any theater when I was doing Dynasty, which was a big shame. Did did anybody? I mean, did anybody have time to do anything? Oh sure, um, Jack did a wonderful play called Hip Hop. Oh God, let me get the title right. Hip Hop Tragedy, I think it was called. Okay. Um, and he was wonderful in it. It was really good. A really good director called Ron Link did the piece. Okay. I've forgotten the name of the, the writer. Andrew Stevens was in it. It was really good. Um, Linda, I think, no, nobody else did. No, no, I think that was it. I mean, I know Joan did various TV movies and things, and, and you know, I think you did a couple of episodics for Aaron during the Dynasty span. Yep. But did anybody really have time to do anything else besides Dynasty? Um, and promote Dynasty and, you know, keep that whole thing... No, because again we had we had you know several months off a year. Yeah. Uh, but that was spent traveling, promoting, um, working. Hopefully, if you're going to do something, um, I did a bit of work in England, uh, not enough, but some, <laughs> which I loved. And <clears throat> no, there was no time. Jack did hip hop tragedy or stand up tragedy. That was it, stand up tragedy. Um, during the run of the show, and um, they were very good to him. The writers, I mean, he worked his pay, we were all pay-as-you-play, 
we were all in every episode. Okay. But they gave him the time. Wow. And he took the time. And he had a lot of energy because he mm-hmm. was about 25, 6, 7. I don't know how old that was. Uh, he was in the late 20s, and he had lots of energy. You do when you're under 30. <laughs> and isn't it great that he's found kind of a second, a second oh, renaissance in his career so on Heroes now? It's proud of him and happy for him. And he is so great on that show. I haven't seen it. I'm sure he is. Jack's a damn good actor. Mm-hmm. And talk about someone who never really got his due on the show. I mean, he, he was asked to play a pretty broadly written part, and he, he um, you know, brought his A-game to it. No matter what he was asked to do on that show, he, he uh, committed to it and, and sold it. Because he's an actor. Yeah. He's the real deal. Like all of us, of course, he had to be good-looking, <laughs> but he's also an actor. And he certainly was. Oh, handsome guy. Yeah. With a great wife. Beth Toussaint Coleman, and they've got a wonderful kid, a, a girl, a daughter, who's heaven on a stick. Uh, they're, they're very happy people. Excellent. So it's October 1990, and Santa Barbara comes along. Yes. Did you have to audition for the part, or were, were you? did you get a phone call? I got a, my agent got a phone call. Wow. And that, this was from, uh, was it Jill Farron Phelps yet, or was it John Conboy? <laughs> oh, it was, um, oh God, John. Conboy? Yep. Okay. So Phelps was gone by that point. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, so, take it back. I thought I'm a prime time kind of guy. Come on. <laughs> That's what I, my instant my response was. And it was explained to me, well, Gordon, there's not a lot of the doors not being beaten down. Um, <laughs> and this is an offer. And it's a really, really good show. Uh-huh. And I suggest that you have lunch with Mr. Combo, which I did. Yes. And um, we obviously came to an agreement, and I took over. I, I took over. Wow. And it was very, it was an extraordinary takeover. Yeah. It was done in the middle of a scene. And at one, Terry Lester fell down, and Gordon Thompson <laughs> got up. <laughs> it was the oddest transition wow. I've ever seen in my life. And he left the show rather abruptly, as I understand. I mean, he kind of left him in the lurch a little bit. He hated doing it. He hated doing it. And his agent found a loophole that gave him an out. And he took it. Wow. And they were... You know, it's sad to say this because he was such a good actor and he was so good on Young and the Restless, his previous show. Yep. But it showed that he didn't really like Santa Barbara for whatever reason. It, it showed on air. I'm sorry to hear that. I like Terry. Oh, he, a, a fantastic actor, but he just it seemed like he never really meshed with his co-stars. He never really had... The chemistry with anybody that is so necessary on a soul. Nancy adored him. She she liked all her Masons, actually. Um, she thought we were all bright, which Nancy respects. <laughs> and um, she liked Terry a lot. And I I never saw him in the, in in the show. Yeah, it um, it was it was a rough transition from from Lane Davies to Terry Lester. It was it well, was they could be more different physically. Exactly. Well, listen, the three of you couldn't be more different. I mean, well, at least Lane and I are both dark. I'm taller, I think. Mm-hmm. He's more cerebral than I. Again, I've met him a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Like him a lot. Mm-hmm. He he passed away a, a few years back. It's Terry did. Yeah. But Lane is still with us. I yes, think. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what are your memories of, of Mr. Conboy? What kind of producer was he? Um. It seemed to me that he was very much like Mr. Spelling in the way that. He was very attuned to the glamour and the beauty of the cast, the beauty of the sets. John wasn't around long enough for me to get, make some of, any sort of great connection. And I was, I was too goddamn busy. 
was, I was, you know, 38 by the feet, 35 pages a day. Um, I would just go to bed with my script, stuff it into my head, get up the next morning uh-huh. at 6, go and do, you know, some aerobics somewhere, and then go to work. Uh-huh. And go home that evening. There was no time to think, oh, good, we did a great job today, everybody. There was no time for that. And we were doing a damn good job. And you, um, were, you were kind of thrust headlong into this... Sorry? You were kind of thrust headlong into this, you yes, know, this, this huge role. Yep. I was ready for that. <laughs> I was damn ready for that. Yeah, and it showed. Thank you. Oh, you were fantastic. Thank you. As I said, you know, of the three Masons, you were far and away my favorite. I, I, thought, I thought you clicked best with Nancy. I thought you and Jed Allen together were unbelievable. What a sweet man that is. Just a lovely guy. I actually wrote his agent a letter and and kind of begged him to to appear on my show. I haven't heard anything yet, but but uh, well, I'm, I hope he does. I've got my fingers crossed because I would love to talk to him. Will you watch it? <laughs> so I take it that your relationship on screen and your relationship off screen couldn't have been more different. I'm sorry. In what way? In well, in turn, it's Mason and Cece always had kind of a contentious kind of you know. Back and forth, and oh, 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 you're back to center. I'm sorry. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. So I'm, I'm, I'm something about convoy, and I'm thinking. Oh no, 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 no. Talking about Jed Allen now. And the Jed was heaven on a stick, and again, if you're going to play really adversarial roles, the actors had better get along awfully well, because you're going to be doing some pretty nasty things mm-hmm. to each other mm-hmm. um, on stage. They're and going to have to look as if you mean it. I would imagine there has to be a great deal of trust between you. Oh, you oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Wow. It is a trapeze act. Mm-hmm. It is going to be done well and going to be exciting. And on Santa Barbara, the writing was, by and large, damn good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, coming from a show which wasn't exactly known for its kind of rich, probing prose, if you know what I mean, and, and careful, you know... Careful, it's check off you're talking about. <laughs> and, you know, you must, the actor in you must have been in hog heaven when you started getting Mason's material. Without question. I mean, it, 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 like you said, the man could talk like nobody else in the history of soaps. History of television <laughs> in, in this country. Um, I think the only, and again, I'm having senior moment, the, the, there was a series with a very good actor in the lead, and he changed identity every week. I've forgotten the name of the show. Um, that's the, last, the only, only other time an actor has been challenged the way an actor playing Mason Cathwell was challenged. Wow. Because it was, Mason was brilliant, passionate, mm-hmm. loathsome, hated, loved. Completely sardonic. Oh, beyond sardonic. And smart as a whip. <laughs> and not embarrassed by it. Uh-huh. And in fact, loved to flaunt it to some people. Yep, you bet. Yeah. <laughs> the black wedding, excuse me? <laughs> brilliant idea. And he was a goddamn judge into the bargain. <laughs> Passionate, passionate, funny madman. And in that sense, you and Nancy were a dream couple because... Well, she's not. And uh, what an actress. Yes, she's a good actress. Oh. You know, it sounds totally stupid, but but I, I love just listening to the two of you banter. Because you both have such terrific voices. I mean, it's it sounds Thank stupid you. to say that, but but just just listening to you go back and forth with each other was... Like listening to you know a great piece of music. I mean, it it really had a rhythm and a and a pitch and a timbre that was just like music. 
What a great compliment. Thank you. It really, I'm not kidding. Again, you. Again, sorry. Yes, we can act, but the writing, <laughs> you haven't got a script, you can't do anything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that show had the finest dialogue writer in the business, a man named Patrick Mulcahy. I mean, exactly. he was the best yep. and still is. Yep. He's on Bold and the Beautiful now. And, and, Lucky uh, old them. <laughs> no, really. He wrote a two-parter when the, because the Dobsons, as you probably know, were, they, they were locked out of their office. At mm-hmm. and then For three years. They were suddenly miraculously reinstated. And um, as a present to themselves, they hired Patrick Mulcahy to write a two-parter, I think, for Mason's birthday. Uh-huh. And it was the best two hours of television I've ever been a part of. Wow. Television, film, stage, period. Best I've ever been a part of. The script was breathtaking. Just breathtaking. And it was all Mason all the time. Uh-huh. I never shut my goddamn mouth. <laughs> that was the dinner party with Marge Doucet, wasn't it? That's it. Wow. Oh, she yes. had a good time. Absolutely. Another, well, lucky me, again, serendipitous. Wow. How serendipitous is that? This stunningly good actor playing uh-huh. my mother for this great, great piece of writing. Uh-huh. Lucky me. And uh, talk about expressive. I mean, she can say more with just a raised eyebrow than, you know, most people can say with, you know, uh, uh, screaming their dialogue. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. Exactly. Wow. Were you terrified of some of the monologues that you were given and expected to learn in the snap of a finger? No. At the time, I don't know what it would be like today, but at the time, we're talking, this is 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, I had remarkable um, total sh- uh, short-term memory. I could remember, I remember Jeb, Jade, Jed um, had a hell of a time with his lines. <laughs> um, and so did uh, Nikki, Nikki, oh God. Nicholas Kester. Okay. Um, Nikki had a terrible time because when Paul Roush came along to produce Santa Barbara, <laughs> uh, he decided to do away with cue cards. Uh-huh. Well, you could have hit Nancy, relied on them, as did Nikki, as did Jed. <laughs> I never used them. And I figured if I could learn my lines, and I've got more than anybody else times two, <laughs> you can learn your goddamn lines. <laughs> well, they could. Nancy proved that she could, because uh-huh. she did. Uh-huh. <coughs> Nikki had a hard time. Jed had a hard time. But they, they, were both, they were both pretty well up there, even at that time. I mean, they were... Chronologically, yes. Yeah, were. exactly. Yep. You know, I always say that, that I would... Seriously, I would kill to see what people like Meryl Streep and Al Pacino would do with one of these scripts on one day's notice the way... I mean, some of these people like Susan Lucci and Eric Braden and Erica Slezak, I mean, the people that have been around for, you know, collectively 200 years, literally. Exactly. Uh, and that's just Susan by herself. <laughs> you know, it, just, it makes you wonder what, what the people who are really deemed, you know, true actors like Merrill and Al, what they would do with one of these scripts on one day's notice. I had a chat with somebody about that. I've forgotten who. I've known with good actors. And... She agreed with me, and until I got to Merrill, and she said, because I thought, I thought, I said, if anybody thinks they can act, they should do daytime for a week, <laughs> with the same pressures, and nothing, no special treatment, and the same quality of writing, and the same number of pages uh-huh. as you and I are doing, uh-huh. and see what they. And I don't think anybody up to street. She said, no, no, she said, Merrill could do this. Pacino, I don't think could. <laughs> 
because he is insane. Mm. <laughs> However, you saw Angels in America. Yes. Was there ever a better performance in anybody, any actor's life than that? No way. That was truly, that was a great piece of acting. Oh. Great piece of acting. Oh, my God. And, and from everybody in that cast, not just everybody. him. Everybody in that cast. Somebody I'm not wild about, Mary Louise Parker, was absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, the kid who played Pryor, Justin Kirk, I mean, he was unbelievable. Yes. No, unbelievable. Wonderful actor. So good. You know, I don't know, do you know the name Peter Bergman? Oh, yes. He's an actor on Young and the Restless? Yes. I read an interview with him years ago, and he said something to the effect of, and this is not a direct quote, so forgive me, Peter, but something to the effect of that the finest acting he's ever seen, he's seen on daytime, and the worst acting he's ever seen, he's seen on daytime. That's it in a nutshell, actually. And I'm wondering if, if you kind of, I don't know, do you think that the, rigor, the rigorous demands of the medium kind of easily lend themselves to the notion that when you hit the pool, you're either going to be Michael Phelps or you're going to sink like a stone, that there's not really time to just be an average actor in daytime or just give an average performance? I don't think so. I think you're right. I think you're right. Just because you have to do it so fast. Yes, you do. You're either going to be really great or you're going to... That's why casting in daytime is so important. Yeah. Really, really important. And stunt casting in daytime is a disaster. It goes everywhere. <laughs> I mean, Paul cast Joan in, I think, One Life to Live? Uh, no, Guiding Light. Guiding Light? Yeah. What a stupid thing to do. It la- you know what? It lasted about four months, and yep. it, it was okay. She did, she did a lot better than she was expected to, but... Because she can do the job. Yeah. But she's not used to that kind of pace. Yeah, and it just... She did it, the job because her husband, Percy, was doing a stage managing, I think, a play in New York at the time. And Joan thought, fine. And her agent found her something to do, so she did it. And what it did was it really threw off the whole energy of that show because, I mean... Because of who she is. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, daytime is, is, is one of those mediums that's very unique in that it depends on consistency every single day because it's people visiting their friends for an hour a day every day and very bringing intimate. them into their living rooms. And, very you know, it's, it, 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 it kind of hinges on, you know... The viewer, I don't, I don't know how to say it, but it kind of hinges on the viewer being on intimate terms, being on friendly terms with the people they're watching. And, you know, as much as you love watching Joan, you don't necessarily want to be her friend. Exactly. So exactly. That's, that's mainly why it didn't work. Now, Peter Bergman, by the way, I did a bit of Young and the Restless um, briefly. I, I played uh, Sandra Nelson's lawyer when she divorced. Oh, you Put me in the name, please. Romanelli. The Michael... Oh, God, I'm looking so... <laughs> um, anyway, I played her, her, divorce, her divorce lawyer. And Peter, what a gentleman. Yes. He came around to... He, he, he's very, he was running that morning. And he came around specifically to, to welcome me to the show. Now, that's a very classy thing to do. Yes. Mr. Braden? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> And he is the luckiest man in daytime. You think? Oh, boy. All he has to do is snap his fingers, and he's on the cover of every magazine and, and uh, you know, has the most beautiful woman on the show at his side, no matter what age she is, and it's... That's what you call having clout, <laughs> really and truly, because he had them by the short and curly. He was, the part was only supposed to be last, I think, six months when he began. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he has that great voice. He's a very good actor, mm-hmm. and he looks wonderful, mm-hmm. and he's arrogant beyond belief. Mm-hmm. And he got away with, you know this, 
at one point, he knocked on Peter Bergman's dressing room door. Peter opened his door, and Eric Braden punched him in the face. He got away with it. Wow. Yeah. Peter Bergman is the nicest man in the business. He is their leading man, in spite of Eric. He's their leading man, or was before Eric arrived. Mm-hmm. And he's a gentleman. And Eric was able, he got away with it. That's how much clout he had. Wow. And that's a true story. You know, it's hard to believe that, that Bill Bell would put up with something like that. But He did. Wow. Ed Scott did. Well, yeah. Wow. That's... Oh. I just don't even... <laughs> genuinely fireproof. And I don't, know, I don't know if you know this or not, but Paul Roush is their new executive producer. Of, of, yeah, he took over in October. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's... It's like cockroaches and shares. <laughs> you know, we're all kind of watching it with kind of uh, guarded optimism right now. We're not really sure how it's going to work. Well, Paul is a very strong individual. I mean, he's Absolutely, no question about it. Have you met him? Uh, no, I haven't, but I've, I, I started watching One Life to Live when he was their executive producer, and so, I, you know, I'm a writer myself, so I just kind of, but way before it was in vogue to, to do that, I always kind of followed the writers' names and the producers' names, and so I just kind of followed him from when he left One Life and... And came to Santa Barbara because I love Santa Barbara anyway, right. and I just kind of followed him from there. So um. no, he's he's very dichotomous. Uh, he can be monstrous, truly monstrous. <laughs> I remember he was sitting in the control booth, which is a very contained area, where the show, from which the show is run, um, monitors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And no smoking signs. This is NBC early '90s. You're not allowed to smoke in an NBC building. <laughs> Paul would smoke his stuff sick. I, and no, nobody could complain because he is ruthless. At the same time, he's married to Lauren Mazel's ex-wife, Israela Margulies. Lauren Mazel, as you know, is the New York Symphony major conductor, um, great musician. Well, Paul married his ex-wife. Paul has loves the fine arts, the antiques. He's um, he got exquisite taste. Mm-hmm. An old girl, a girlfriend of his showed me some jewelry he once gave her. It's superb. Wow. And he can also be a major pig. <laughs> and the pig is what you get to see mostly. <laughs> Did he ever take the cigar out of his mouth, ever? Sorry? Did he ever take the cigar out of his mouth, ever? I never saw it. <laughs> wow. And oddly enough, we liked each other. And how much personal interaction did you... I mean, was he on the set often? What kind of producer was he? He was pretty... He was the most on hands of all of them. Okay. He, he, it's a Paul Rouse show. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Bit of water. You know, that's, that's kind of what we're all worried about with Young and the Restless, because it, it seems to me that, that Paul never meshes well with a really strong writer... Yeah. And, uh, in, uh, for instance, he had Claire Labine at Guiding Light for a while, and it didn't work at all. I mean, it was it was a complete mismatch. Really? Yeah, um, a complete mismatch. It was a disaster. <laughs> She's a wonderful writer. Exactly. And and uh, he's got uh, 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 Bill Bell's daughter-in-law right now as the head writer of the show, and it's it's really kind of working right now. But it seems to me that whenever he's got a strong writer holding the pen, it doesn't always work well because – like you said, it, when when Paul Ross is on a show, it's his show. Yep. So we're all kind of watching with guarded optimism to see how it all kind of works out. 
Well, that's a war horse, that show, is it not? Oh, by, I mean, it's been number one for 20 years now, so. Yeah. And been on the air for nearly 40, so. So while you were on Santa Barbara, yes. ABC reverses course, and they decide that they are going to give Dynasty the final episode it deserved, after yep. all, mm-hmm. in, in the form of a two-part, four-hour movie. Mm-hmm. And you ultimately were not allowed to take part in that movie, and we kind of heard different stories about what exactly happened. So, what exactly happened? Um, a lack of professional behavior on the part of the um, Battling Production Office. Um, I was offered the job. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I said yes. But you've got to clear it with Santa Barbara's Production Office. Because uh, I was the only actor, the only member of the cast who had a job when the thing was put together. And... The only? Yeah. Everybody else... I mean, I was busy. Yeah. And my agent at the time, um, when this all came out of the wash, it turns out that in the two weeks before rehearsals were to begin, he logged something like 15 calls to the production office of Aaron Spelling. And the person in charge was a man called Tony Shepard, who, it turns out, is a godchild of Aaron's. Tony didn't return phone calls, and they were urgent calls, because everybody knows that I, we all had outs on soap opera. You could get an out to do a special, uh, to do a movie, to do, if you gave three weeks notice. Okay. You had to have three weeks lead time. Yeah. Or two weeks at the very least, because the writing had to be adjusted. Mm-hmm. <coughs> That's the way, on, the way one can take vacations on a soap opera. But they need notice. Yeah. Well, to do a two-hour, four-hour special, <coughs> they need three weeks' notice. They didn't get back to us. <coughs> well, I'm so sorry, Brandon. That's okay. Um, until I noticed When I went in for it, <laughs> I'm boy, what a great <laughs> a deep breath or two. <laughs> when I went in for a final fitting wardrobe, <coughs> I saw a shooting schedule. Wow. So you were still thinking all this time that you were going to be a part of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did. I thought things had been taken care of. They hadn't been. Wow. And um, I finally sued. And uh, I won. <laughs> Not much, but I won. Yeah. And... Um, I was, I mean, probably the stupidest thing in the world is to sue Aaron Spelling, and he's the man responsible for whatever celebrity one has. Uh, but <laughs> I thought if an actor had been as unprofessional mm-hmm. as the production manager of this piece, mm-hmm. he would never be hired again. Wow. So I'm not going to be a scapegoat. Exactly. With this crap. And I saw a memo from, I'm not, maybe it was Duke Vincent, I'm not sure. Gordon unavailable or 
availability, Gordon's availability, Western Mark. Well, my agent has done his job. Mm -hmm. I'm doing mine. Mm -hmm. Your production manager is not doing his. Wow. They finally, it was 24 hours, noted. That's all they gave themselves. They cast somebody called Adam Sachs over the phone because he had the same size suit as I did. <laughs> That's true. Oh. And the script was awful. It was a dreadful script. Yeah, that's what I was gonna. That's what I was gonna ask. I was gonna say, you know, given the vast inferiority of the finished product, oh, was, don't I, you think you ended up with getting the better end of the deal overall, ultimately? No, because it would have been fun to get together. I mean, we liked it. It was a good cast. We liked each other. Yeah. With a few exceptions, and obvious exceptions, but no, we we got along well. Yeah, but that movie was terrible. Oh, I know. It's <laughs> The writing was just... <laughs> I remember there was one line, I couldn't believe that he had the gall to print out <laughs> on paper. I had to say, practically in tears, I was seduced by the lure of the gold. <laughs> oh, really? I was seduced by the lure of the gold. Now, there's a classic piece of fucking writing for you. <laughs> and it was all like that. It was crap. And Adam was, he was very busy in that reunion thing, the wrap-up. Mm -hmm. But they did, they made the huge mistake of deciding to write it themselves rather than farming it out to a couple of really clever people mm -hmm. who loved the show for what it really was. Mm -hmm. And could try to recapture that magic in, you know, instead of having to stretch it out over a season, just kind of recapture it, almost bottle it up in just a little four-hour extravaganza. Uh-huh. They couldn't pull it off. Wow. It was dreadful. And that's pretty much the universal opinion of everybody involved, yes? I would think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't talk about it much. Yeah, I know, well, I know Joan's gone on record as saying it was awful, and, and, and John was saying it was probably a bad idea to do. Well, I remember that I was told, because I talked to Jay, the uh, wonderful wardrobe man, and he, he called me uh, shortly afterwards, after the day back, and he said, Gordy, I'm not supposed to be talking to you. We've all been so proud to talk to you. But I want to tell you that you're... Whatever the news he had for me. Nobody... They, there was an edict from the Shapiro's not to talk to Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> because wow. somebody fucked up so badly. Wow. And it wasn't me. That's incredible. Yes. Unbelievable. It was a problem of scheduling. And proper professional notice. And behavior. Yep. Wow. That's all it was. So when um, when John Conboy was replaced with Paul Roush, yeah, what was the feeling on the set? I mean, was was Conboy really liked by the cast? Was I it... would say not. Okay. Um, I think some of them had worked with him before. Um, Paul is abrasive. He doesn't set himself out to charm you. Uh, Conboy, you see, a Jill Farron Phelps was loved. Yes. I mean, really deeply loved. Yes. Loved her. And that cast was united in their love for her. Um, when Conboy took over, it was not, for, as I recall, that long. A year, maybe? Yeah, I think it was about a year. If, um, if that. Yeah, if that. And um, there were other people involved, other producers as well. Oh, God, the names have evade me, but... Um, Field. There was a woman who was in charge at one point. Okay. Um, as well. 
But Jill Farentoff was, through Santa Barbara's glory days, she was the producer of record. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when they all won all their Emmys. Mm-hmm. When um, Three in a row, which was unprecedented at that time. I mean, Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Because they filmed it. They actually, they, the difference between film and taping is really radical. They actually shot Santa Barbara on film for the first couple of seasons. They filmed polo matches, for God's sake. <laughs> it was outrageous. Oh, was n- listen, no expense was spared here. I mean, this was... No, I know. And this what they used to say, there was a, routinely 16-hour days. They would sleep in their dressing rooms. They had no home life wow. that was for the first year. When they went, then they finally wised up and realized, number one, it was too expensive. And number two, it was impossible for anybody to do this on this schedule <laughs> and produce an hour a finished, technically swift, uh-huh. Television a day, uh-huh. and that was known as an actor's soap too. I mean, that was the show that actors wanted to be on. Well, of course, because of oh, because as you said, the writing was sterling, the production values were top notch. Yes, I and mean, the cast was wonderful. Yeah, Robin Wright, for God's sake. Good Lord, Marcy Walker and A. Martinez. Yes, and at the top, Jed Allen and uh, 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 Lane Davies. Yeah, Judith McConnell. Yep. Nancy, of course. Uh, 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 Judith Anderson. Yes. I mean, it was miraculous. Louise Sorrell. Yep. Who I adore. <laughs> She's just wonderful. Robin Matson, who was terrific. Robin is also wonderful. Ugh. It and was just... very happily married. It was the best of the best. Yes, I agree. In, uh, in front of the camera and behind it. Yes. I mean, it was, it was just one of those... Serendipitous. Yeah, everything comes together sometimes and just collides into one big perfect storm of just terrific art. And yep. that's exactly what that show was. Yes, I agree. In its heyday. Yep. So, Roush comes in, and what happens to the morale on the set? Again, you're talking 15 years ago. Um, nobody's terribly happy. Eileen Davidson's happy because she's been asked to play Kelly. Yes. Which was an insane piece of casting. Eileen's gorgeous, and she's a damn good actor. But Robin Wright Penn to Carrington... Garland, yeah. Garland. Yes. To Eileen Davidson? <laughs> I mean, from the most wonderful, fragile-looking, wistful doll. And Carrington was great. She was... Carrington that? was adorable. <laughs> yes, she was. And here comes Eileen, and Eileen is... It's it, she's it's, many things adorable. It's not one of them. Yeah, she's. I mean, she's a true gal. If if that's. I mean, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but she is. You she's know, wonderful. I adore her. Yeah. To go from a china doll to a woman. I mean, a, a true gal. It was a. <laughs> no, Kelly. Without giving the audience a chance to adjust. No. <laughs> and that was just Paul, going for the biggest name available. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Oh, and, and during that final year, he did that repeatedly. I mean, he brought Kim Zimmer over. He brought Stephen Nichols over for a little while. Yep. I mean, that was kind of... Ludicrous. <laughs> Kim, again, wonderful. But the story, what the hell had that to do with... It's all about the Capwells and the, the, the hoo-hahs. You know, <clears throat> Lockridge and Capwell. Yes, exactly. When you, when you stray from the core, I go back to my Ryan's Hope remark about the bar. Mm-hmm. And the Golden Girls in the Kitchen. Mm-hmm. When you, it, Santa Barbara was about the Capwells and the Lockridges. Mm-hmm. And when you introduce a higher new family <laughs> with somebody as powerful as Kim Zimmer at the head of it, that's, that, that's, that, that, you're, you're, it's like introducing atonal music 
into the middle of Bach. No, it doesn't work. Even though she played the hell out of it. Even though. Kim's a wonderful actor. Yes, you bet. As you say, but the intimacy that you so wisely say is essential with the familiarity mm-hmm. between audience and character mm-hmm. and audience and show. It, you can't impose like that. And Paul allowed it to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a very bad pool. I just think it was one of those instances where, you know, Paul realized that he had nothing to lose and he just decided he and and he brought in Pam Long as the writer after the Dobsons left. Yep. And I think they just decided to go for broke. <laughs> I think you're probably right. And, you know, I mean, at, at a certain point you just go what the hell and 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 uh, you know, it's it's the whole pasta the one at the wall thing yep. again. It's see if something can stick. And some good stuff came out of that final year and came out of uh, Kim and Sidney Penny came in and, and that whole family. Some good stuff came out of that. Oh, absolutely. And if I'm not mistaken, you got a chance to work with them. There was some kind of trial toward the end. As I recall, yeah. Yeah, and, and you, you got a chance to do some good... Did, did you enjoy Kim? Oh, of course. Oh, yes, you bet I did. Everybody loves Kim. She's a, first of all, she's a wonderful woman. Yeah. With, again, a great family. Yeah. Great marriage. And she's a Wonderful actor. She know, she is completely giving. She's totally generous. And she's totally honest. With a very strong personality. And she's exciting to spend time with. I, I can imagine. I mean, talk about someone who's seen it all. Yep. Was and done it all, too. <laughs> no, she has. Was, was the cast at all resentful of her? I don't think so. I can't imagine... But just just in terms of just in terms of the new interloper coming in and getting all the airtime. No, I don't think so. Okay, that's that's good to hear. It would surprise me, because again, she's so good. Maybe now, I, women are. I think it's hard to be sexist, but women as performers are different from men as performers, to a fair degree, I think, when it comes to ego. I'm not quite sure how. You should ask Nancy about that. If she resented Kim. Okay. She may have done. I don't know. There, there was some stuff in the press toward the end of the of the of the run where, I don't, I don't, some of the veteran actors who had been there the longest, like Nancy, like Jed, were. I don't know if resentful is the right word, but maybe a little bit hurt that. Were that, they quoted saying this, or were they? So was that implied, or what? Uh, I, Nancy didn't didn't say it directly, but she. It was very highly intimated. Let's put it that way. Well. Wouldn't surprise me. Nancy is very secure. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember what she she is fearless about expressing her own opinion on the set. She will interrupt. <laughs> she, well, yeah, oh, she she's extraordinary, <laughs> and uh, continues to do so. And extraordinarily opinionated, I can almost wager. Oh, you bet. About more than just what's going. I mean, everything you know, under the yeah. sun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very politically bent. Yes. Wow. How did you two enjoy working together? I mean, enormously. I I can only I mean it showed on screen. You you two literally just sparkled together. Thank you. On behalf of both of us. <laughs> so do you know whose idea that awful uh, haunted house storyline was that you two got mixed up in after you got married? No, I don't. I don't. How did you feel about that story? Hated it. Oh. 
And it was very unfair because they cast some very good actors as our staff, really good actors. And they were so they were thrilled to be doing the show. They thought because the reputation the show had previously clung to it in, to some degree for some people. And they were thrilled. They were going to do this wonderful show in this great new storyline with these great parts, with this great writing on no, no, and no. It was just so shabby. It, now, Brandon, my clock says it's after 10 o'clock. Oh, my. Yes, it is. It is 12.04 here. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> oh, my God. We've been talking for two hours and four minutes. Yes, we have. Oh, I have had it's such like a... choking fit. <laughs> and I'm, I do apologize about that. <laughs> no, it's perfectly fine. Oh, I have had such a great time talking to you, and I still have so many more questions for you. I, I, I'm going to have to beg you to come back on the show. Of course I will. Oh, my God. I still, there's still so much I want to know. We just barely scratched the surface here. You could have fooled me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can't even tell you what a thrill this was, and I can't even tell you how much I appreciate you kind of taking a, a blind leap of faith here in, in coming on the show. I'm sure you must have thought, what in the hell have I gotten myself into? But No, I, I, we had a chat, and I thought, this is a nice guy who's genuine enthusiasm, and he's bright, and he's inventive, and he's doing something brand new. So, sure. And I was very, enormously complimented when you asked me to do the show. Oh, I, I, was, I was very happy that your representation uh, passed the message along to you because that hasn't been the case with several other people that I've invited. So Really? Yeah. It's, and, and I can kind of well, understand it. May I say, if it, if it, whatever it may be worth, please say, if it helps you at all, that I've done it and I had a very good time. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> People get protected of their clients sometimes. Yes. And sometimes if somebody, I mean, I'm not doing anything that I haven't thought far too long, but I think if I'm known for anything, it's being a pro, um, and I love what I do, um, please say that, you know, Gordon had a very experience that he really, really enjoyed. I, I certainly will. And, you know, I can, I can totally understand it because I'm sure that so many people have gotten burned so many times by, you know, People similar to me with, with outlets similar to mine. I can, I can only imagine that. Probably. I can, I can certainly understand the reticence to kind of, you know, dive in blindly here. Well, you should be given a chance because you're doing something really good. I, I certainly hope so. I'm trying really hard. I know you are. Good for you. Yeah. So, listen, before I let you go, can I get you to do me one quick favor? Yep. And record a promo for the show? Okay, what do I say? You can say anything you like as long as it includes the words Gordon Thompson and Brandon's Buzz. So just say, you know, I mean, you can say whatever you want, but something like, hi, this is Gordon Thompson. I'm here on Brandon's Buzz, or you're listening to Brandon's Buzz, or, you know, anything. You can phrase it however you like, as long as it has long? your name and my name. How long? Uh, 15 seconds, 30, whatever you want. You can say anything you like. Okay. And I'm recording anytime, so anytime you're ready, shoot. Okay. Hi, this is Gordon Thompson speaking. And I want to tell you that I have appeared on Brandon's Buzz, and I had a great time. And I think you will, too. So please, log on and have a listen. Thank you so, so much. This was truly a great thrill. Thank you. And uh, like I said, I'm going to beg you to come on again because... Don't beg me, just ask me. Because <laughs> we've just barely scratched the surface here, and there's so much more I want to know. Okay. And somebody else must have other questions. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are, there are a couple callers who uh, got short shrift here because... 
I hogged all the airtime, but it's called Brandon's Buzz for a reason, so. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, come, give me a, you know, email me and let me know when next you'd like to do something. I certainly will. Okay. I thank you so much. Thank you, Brandon. Have a good evening. You too. Bye. Gordon Thompson, everybody, on Brandon's Buzz. Uh, I've run overtime. It's 12.07 Texas time, so I've run seven minutes overtime. Uh, you can you can download the show and you can hear the whole show in its entirety um, when you download it. If you would please go to the show page and rate the show, comment about the show, I would seriously appreciate it. Um, and I appreciate you listening. I, I had a fabulous time, and I hope you did too. A two-hour extravaganza with Gordon Thompson, a television legend. It was great fun. It was very exciting. And I appreciate you all listening. I don't have another guest lined up right now, but I have firm yeses from more than one person. So uh, as soon as I get a guest locked in, hopefully next week sometime, we'll have another show. Uh, Of course, you can visit the blog. It's brandonsbuzz.com for more information on who's coming and when. And you can visit the BTR show page, which is www.blogtalkradio.com slash brandonsbuzz. And you can get all the information there. It's great fun. It's great stuff. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for coming here. Thank you so much for supporting the show. And thank you for listening to Brandon's Buzz.